0: This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by our good friends at Musicbed, licensing relevant music. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, editor-in-chief of No Film School.
1: I'm John Fusco, producer at No Film School.
0: It's July 28th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll get into the News and Doc Emmy nominees, memorials to both director Gary Marshall and the VCR, some drone drama, and as always, news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. <music> Welcome to this week's show. As usual, we're coming to you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of no film school, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. This week, we have a special guest with us, Charles Hain. He's uh, been one of our regular tech writers, and he has quite the prolific film history and is also a film professor. So he's joining us today to weigh in and talk about gear. Hello. Hello, Charles. Hello, John. Hello <laughs> I like everyone's enthusiasm today. As we've been discussing the last couple of weeks, our news, especially in the States, there's a lot of headline drama outside the film world. Um, the big event this week is the Democratic National Convention following last week's Republican National Convention, which are basically the formal nominating processes for the next presidential candidates for the USA. The DNC actually has several movie tie-ins, so I'll just throw them out there. It's not just that actress Elizabeth Shue, Meryl Streep, and former indie filmmaker-turned-TV producer Lena Dunham spoke on behalf of Hillary Clinton, but also Michelle Obama had two movie-related moments, um, which doesn't really shock me since she's basically our biggest movie star first lady since Jackie O, in my opinion, before her uh, speech on the opening night of the convention, which is just being buzzed about all over the internet. Um, They played a video tribute to her by none other than J.J. Abrams. And also, a uh, lesser-known tie-in for Mrs. O, the beautiful blue dress that Michelle Obama wore actually has some movie lore attached to it. And that is that it was uh, designed by Christian Siriano, an American designer who actually won Project Runway several years ago. And many of you probably know that Mrs. Obama is noted for choosing to highlight American designers uh, during her big performances, But this one's particularly notable to us in the film world because Christian Siriano is the same designer who basically stepped forward via social media when Leslie Jones basically said on the internet that she couldn't find anyone who wanted to dress her for the premiere of Ghostbusters. As most of you probably know, she's a big woman, over six feet tall, and not your sort of traditional designer's muse. So the fact that Siriano basically stepped up and created this stellar off-the-shoulder red gown for the Ghostbusters premiere was really saying something. And the fact that Mrs. Obama then went to Christian Siriano for her dress for this event just can't be a coincidence.
1: Also this weekend, San Diego's edition of Comic-Con happened, and uh, we have a post ranking some of the trailers completely subjectively, meaning they're basically my own opinions about how well-made the trailers were and how much i got hyped for the movies themselves you can check out all the trailers on that post it's pretty heavily dominated by dc and superhero movies which is the trend i suppose there were new trailers for justice league for suicide squad and for wonder woman the wonder woman one was pretty good i thought um It took the highest spot for me out of any of the DC trailers, which I'm sort of always pessimistic about just because, uh, I don't know, I'm not a huge Zack Snyder fan and they haven't really put out a movie yet that I've really enjoyed since I don't think anyone man. who
0: listens to this show will be surprised to hear that I loved the Wonder Woman trailer, even though I secretly wish that the movie was starring Michelle Obama.
1: Oh, I, I totally am down with Gal Gadot being the star of that movie because she's beautiful and kicks ass, much like Michelle Obama, but I Um, thought
0: you were going to say much like me.
2: No, well, oh, you or me? (laughs) Anyway. Um, Um, I do have a question, though. Do we know if the DNC or if Comic-Con scheduled firsts? But they're sure. scheduled several years out into the future. Yeah, I don't know if the DNC is the same every... The DNC is about a year out, apparently.
0: Yeah. I don't know. DNC, DC, sounds like yet another conspiracy.
2: I know, but it seems like they were uh, trying to get millennials who are paying attention to Comic-Con from afar, maybe more in front of their computers, and then get their traffic over to... I don't know. I think it was deliberate.
0: It's anyone's guess. So would it be too much of a spoiler to tell us what your favorite of the trailers was?
1: Well, my favorite of the trailers was the new Kong trailer. Um I just thought it looked really cool and I like Brie Larson a lot. All the sort of flares effects that they used and I'm not talking about like lens flare, I'm talking about like actual like flares for helicopters, like colored flares. Reminded me a lot of Apocalypse Now, which is one of my favorite movies and there was sort of like this tribal native element going on that i liked i wasn't expecting that to be my favorite trailer but one of the commenters actually talked about how um they had a friend who worked on the film and one of the actors i won't say who pretty much two weeks into the shoot decided that the movie was terrible and was pretty hard to work with um and he's a pretty well-respected actor so that kind of dampens my hopes a little bit but we'll see what happens
0: i was shocked that That Kong topped your list, so I hope you guys will all check out the post and weigh in with your very subjective opinions. Moving on to our actual indie indie film weekly headlines. Last week, we discussed the handful of docs and indie directors nominated in the main Emmy categories. On the day that the show aired, the News and Documentary Emmy nominees were announced. This is a separate ceremony that takes place a couple of days after the Emmys, but it's no less prestigious, and we appreciate it because there's lots more room to recognize indie talent. Not surprisingly, PBS leads the pack with 54 nominations, and of course they're renowned for showcasing indie makers in their Independent Lens and POV series. I want to congratulate in particular my friend Stacy Reese, who came to our No Film School Tribeca party and also produced one of my favorite docs of last year, The Diplomat, which aired on HBO and was nominated in the outstanding historical programming category. The film was directed by Richard Holbrook, and it's about his father, U.S. Ambassador Richard C. Holbrook. The movie's intimate access to global affairs could only be achieved because of that familial relationship and the diplomacy displayed in it seems particularly poignant right now in a political climate that feels basically undiplomatic. Some of the other Indies nominated are Tashi and the Monk, Art and Craft, Cutie and the Boxer, Through a Lens Darkly, and Very Semi-Serious. Congrats, everybody. We want to recognize the passing of the prolific TV and film writer and director Gary Marshall, who passed away last week. He may be best known for his incredibly popular TV shows like Happy Days, which, by the way, introduced us to future film stars, including Robin Williams and Ron Howard. But he also made a big mark on film itself, particularly for putting Julia Roberts on the map and garnering her an Oscar nomination for Pretty Woman in 1991. We have a post on No Film School celebrating his career, particularly how his work on TV influenced film and how his work on film influenced TV.
1: Well, you've asked us, but we both have never really seen a Gary Marshall movie. Um, So, Liz, do you have a favorite Gary Marshall movie?
0: (laughs) I don't have the filmography. Um,
1: You seemed so into him last week when, when he actually passed. Pretty Woman...
0: I was just surprised at how prolific his career had been. Like the guy was constantly turning stuff out. Um, And, you know, it was my, basically my youth era of TV. So they were sort of in reruns, but I grew up watching Happy Days and especially Mork and Mindy. I loved that show. That's where Robin Williams really got his start. And, um, And they were Gary Marshall shows. And he does this sort of saccharine sweet thing that I'm not really... You know, so into anymore, but as a young person, the stuff was definitely influential and um I really liked the movie beaches. I think it's weirder than people um expect it to be in a good way.
1: I've never heard of it, so <laughs> I'll check it out now, maybe Whoa. Probably oh, probably not John, there well, I'm
0: you go making me feel yeah. wicked, wicked old again
2: well i'm 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 the youngest year <laughs> kind of a long shot, so. Uh, would it be wrong to say that my favorite Gary Marshall movie is the parody of Gary Marshall movies in 30 Rock, Martin Luther King Day with Emma Stone? No, I, that's fair. I didn't know Emma Stone was in, uh,
1: oh, she 30 was in- Rock. For some reason, since I think, since we were on the topic of old TV shows, I was like, Third Rock from the Sun? No, oh, no, not that old.
0: <laughs> I gotta see it.
1: In more news of Relics of the Past, Japan is making its last ever VCR this month, which is pretty sad. Um... I am old enough to have uh, lived through the VCR stage. I remember having, you know, tons of Disney movies on VCR and uh, Winnie the Pooh. That's how young I was. You may think that the VCR has been gone for a while, but the Japanese company, Funai Electric has still been making them for brands like Sonyo, and believe it or not, they sold seven hundred and fifty thousand units last year. Last week, however, the company announced that they will no longer be producing VCR tapes. So bye bye VCR tapes. Thank you. Wait, is it VCR tapes or VCR? VCRs. 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 So just the. Uh,
0: the way to play the. Tapes. The
1: way to play the tapes. Wow. So people were buying seven hundred and fifty thousand. VCR players.
2: players.
0: Isn't that surprising? That's
2: surprising. Well, it's like this great reminder that technology never dies as fast as we think it does. Like I was on a film set in 2005 and this random guy walked by and was like, people are still shooting film looking at our camera and it's like, uh, yeah, it's 2016 and people are still shooting film. Like, people are still watching things on VCRs. Like, especially because the VCR is like, this amazing internet free way to like make things at home and send it to people. Yeah,
1: I don't know. I was trying to place it sort of in the realms of like nostalgic devices, sort of like how you add it to film or how you'd compare it to vinyl and I I don't I don't really know like where its place is because really when when you're watching VCR, you're just kind of watching a grainier version of the movie. So I mean, what it's some like
0: people have argued is that like sort of like how people feel about vinyl, that the kind of texture of the films is different on mm-hmm. a videotape. And some of those movies just weren't made to be seen in high def. I mean, sometimes when I see older films in high def, they just look super weird.
1: Yeah, right. And I think that, you know, with vinyl, it's also I mean, like you're getting like HD sound, um, whereas with VCRs, you're
2: never going to get that HD quality um to the recording so I, I don't know it's but it's but for me it's about access like it's less about image quality and it's more about the fact that like the vcr and vhs as a platform is like really what like so many filmmakers like went out with their friends and made vhs movies and you mm-hmm. could dub it and like every time you dubbed it it looked way worse but like you could share it with people well what i really
1: like is content creators that take their digital recordings and then process them through VHS and then they kind of give it the VHS feel, um, sort of like what Adult Swim does or uh, I guess I have a I have a friend who runs this company called New VHS and they literally just make two-minute shorts that look like they could have been from the 90s but are just absolutely ridiculous. So I, I, like, I appreciate that quality. Um, now,
2: are they doing it by like shooting digitally and then dubbing to VHS or yeah, is it like th- an
1: app? I think what they do is they shoot digitally and then there's this whole VHS process where he sends the digital version to his friend in LA who then copies that or transfers that onto VHS and then takes that VHS recording and transfers it back to the computer and then he does some final like mastering back in New York where they add um, you know like digital effects and stuff
2: so they need to stock up yeah yeah like they need 10 VHS players on yeah. standby because you won't be able to get a new one anymore yeah get a VHS player now if you want to get one
0: moving from a retro technology to a very very new one. California's first drone-related arrest happened last week when a guy flew his drone too close to a wildfire burning near Sacramento, thereby temporarily preventing a firefighting aircraft from doing its job. Now, the guy flying the drone actually wasn't charged with flying a drone specifically, nor has he been penalized by the FAA, but rather he was charged with a more general misdemeanor for interfering with firefighting efforts now, we know that several of you are experimenting with using drones in your work, and we've posted lots of stories about new drone gear and the ever-evolving drone laws, but this story is a good reminder that it's illegal to get in the way of firefighters and other emergency personnel doing their work, and it's also dumb, so don't do it.
1: That guy had some balls flying his drone so close to a fire in the first place. I don't know what the sort of heat regulations are on a drone, but I would be afraid it would melt.
0: It doesn't even sound like to me like he had like chutzpah, which is the Jewish way of saying balls, but it's more like he was like kind of just not thinking about it. Like It seems like kind of a, a dummy move.
2: Well, the weird thing about drones is that you can get cool shots from so far away that you find yourself forgetting. Like I definitely, on the first time I flew a drone, was down by the Mississippi River and like just let it drift out over the Mississippi without even thinking, getting this really cool shot. And then all of a sudden looked down and we were running out of battery and I was like, oh. If it runs out of battery dumb. right now, it's just going to fall in the Mississippi River, yeah. and I'm going to feel very dumb. Yeah. And uh, so I imagine it was a situation like that, where it was like super far away and way up overhead, and then he saw the fire, and it just drifted right over to the fire, and uh, and prevented firefighters from effectively fighting the fire, which is uh, a crime. He did probably get a pretty cool shot, though, out of it.
1: Just just saying. <laughs>
0: Point. <laughs> so that's a great segue into our gear section, which is what Charles Hain does best. Take it away, Charles.
2: All right. So this week in gear news, we've got a couple things of software, and then we've got a piece of hardware that I think is pretty interesting, but is still in the prototype phase. Uh, with software, Assimilate Scratch came out with 8.5 and with a VR tool set. The specifically interesting thing about their VR tool set is it's one of the first being made by like a traditional filmmaking company not a VR company, but that integrates specifically like heads up VR tools. So you can put on your Oculus or in their case, cardboard uh, from Google and you get a tool palette that you can use to do color grading to your VR footage and limited amount of compositing to your VR footage. And those tools being built by filmmaking companies is really interesting to me. Because in my experience, when the tools are built by the people making it, it is usually a crazy hodgepodge. Like I remember when Stereo 3D first came out, everything was a total mess, and it was all these crazy plugins, and the people building the cameras would have proprietary tools, but you don't really start to see progress until the third party manufacturers, like Scratch, who's been around forever, start making tools for a new platform. We've been hearing about the promise of VR for a really long time, and we've started to see it in the field in the last couple of years, especially with Google Cardboard, but, now that we're starting to see people like Scratch make tools for VR, I think we're about to finally hit that watershed moment where we might see some really interesting work happen there. Another gear update, Film Convert added a bunch of new camera profiles. Uh, Film Convert is a great tool if you guys haven't tried it. They have a free demo on their website, and you should all give it a shot. Film Convert lets you take your footage and apply looks that emulate various traditional film stocks. But one of the greatest things that FilmConvert does is they go out and they profile cameras. So, you know, 10 years ago, if you got a random Final Cut Pro plug-in that said, oh, I look like, you know, Vision 3, 5219, uh, without knowing what the original camera looked like you're not necessarily gonna be able to actually emulate what the film stock looked like. So what FilmConvert does is they go out and they profile cameras, and they're constantly updating with new cameras. The big news in this one is the Ursa Mini from Blackmagic has been profiled, and by having that, you're able to get a much more accurate reproduction of what the original film stock would've looked like. Now, it's never gonna be perfect, but you're gonna get a lot closer, and that, combined with a little bit of grading, We're starting to get to the point where you could even theoretically intercut between archival film footage and modern film convert footage in a pretty seamless way. So that's super cool. In hardware news, Panasonic released a prototype today of a combination balloon drone, which I think is really cool. Drones are wonderful and they're great, but they've got a couple big drawbacks. They have the spinning blades, which we've all seen videos of drones cutting somebody. Enrique Iglesias got cut in a concert, although that was partially his fault. He grabbed a drone in the middle of a concert but it does Yikes. happen. Oh, yeah, it's terrifying. He he does it every concert, but for whatever reason, this time he just stuck his hands up in the blades. It's like bleeding all over his shirt. A balloon drone uh, lets you avoid that by covering the spinning blades, not just in like a, a very simple little plastic container like those little consumer drones, but like a big, protected enclosure. But it's also nice because balloons have buoyancy, Some of the lift is being provided by the balloon, so you don't have to eat up as much of your drone battery providing all that lift. And I think it's a really great combo. We've been using balloons in filmmaking for a long time, uh, air light and a bunch of other tools out there for lighting from balloons. But you don't get a lot of control. So you're getting like the control of a drone and the like float and safety of a balloon. I think it's great. I'm really excited. I hope uh, Panasonic gets these out in the field really soon.
0: Also, they look kind of funny and cuddly. I like them.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. It's the first drone you could snugs.
0: (laughs) Cool. Thanks, Charles. So moving on to our upcoming grant deadlines.
1: On August 10th, the Points North short form editing residency deadline happens. It's part of the Camden Film Festival's new Points North Institute, which we've talked about in other shows. Um, They've released some pretty cool opportunities for filmmakers as part of their film festival, but they've just announced this inaugural short-form editing residency. The new program is designed to support filmmakers and journalists working on documentary shorts or episodic series. It's a week-long residency and takes place from September 11th to September 18th. It brings four selected filmmakers to Maine to work on their edit with input from experienced mentors. One of the nicest or most luxurious parts of this sort of Opportunity is that you get to spend seven nights on their dime on the picturesque coast of Maine You also get a thousand dollar stipend for travel and a rental car 2 all access passes to the Camden International Film Festival And points north forum and you get meetings with commissioning editors from major digital publications at CIFF
0: as an added bonus I'm gonna be there this year and it's freaking gorgeous. So I hope we all get to meet in Maine Also on August 10th, the National Endowment for the Humanities Production and Media Development Grants applications are due. We're giving you a little extra lead time on this one because basically they're the big daddy of government support for documentaries that address humanities areas. They're basically the only government support we have, and thus their application process is completely intense. You need an experienced team, a nonprofit organization or fiscal sponsor, two humanities advisors, and it's this massive application. Ken Burns himself, who is the classic winner of these major grants, um, basically his project descriptions are rumored to have been around 40 pages each. But the payoff is worth it. They're one to three year grants in the $100,000 to $650,000 range Film and television projects that apply can be single programs or series addressing significant figures, events, or ideas, and drawing their content from humanities scholarship— and they also have to be intended for national distribution. This August 10th deadline also offers you the opportunity to get a development grant for your humanities-oriented doc. And those are also worth applying for because the awards range from the forty dollars to $75,000 grant. If you guys apply and win, please let us know. We are rooting for you. We want to give a special thanks to Musicbed for sponsoring this week's podcast. Ever since Musicbed entered the industry, they've been changing the music licensing game for us filmmakers. There's no more sifting through endless production catalogs or settling for a song that like just kind of works. They've signed with more than 600 of the world's best indie artists and composers. That means incredible music for your projects with friendly staff and an easy to search catalog to help you find it. This catalog represents artists in so many different genres, from indie veterans like Need to Breathe, Kai Kai, Ben Rector, Parade of Lights and my pals in one of my favorite bands, Paper Moons. It also includes classic artists like Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. So head on over to musicbed.com to explore their catalog, read up on a blog, see their latest film, or just chat with a music expert. Right now, this is the best part. They're offering 20% off a single license just for Indie Film Weekly listeners. You can get the discount by entering the promo code SCHOOLSOUT when you check out. That's S-C-H-O-O-L-S-O-U-T when you check out. There's no better time to find the perfect soundtrack for your latest project.
1: And in festival deadlines, the Philadelphia Film Festival deadline is July 29th. It's an annual 11-day festival running from October 20th to 30th, and it's now in its 25th year. Philadelphia has a pretty nice blossoming art scene right now. There's a lot of students there. Actually, my friend who I was talking about, who runs this new VHS company, went to is it University of Arts? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in in Philadelphia, and there's a big film scene there. So if you live in that area, or even if you don't and want to be discovered, I guess not. I mean, that's a little bit dramatic, but uh, definitely try and apply to this film festival. Also on the East Coast, the Woodstock Film Festival's deadline, and this is their final deadline, is on July 29th. I say it's their final deadline because their final deadline has already passed, but if you use Film Freeway, which is where we sort of gather all the information for these festivals to enter into the festival, then you can still apply. IndieWire named the Woodstock Film Festival one of the top 50 film festivals in the world, and Movie Maker Magazine included the festival as one of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world. There's cash prizes and or services given out for Best Narrative Feature, Best Documentary Feature, Best Shorts, Best Cinematography, and Best Female Director.
0: On August 1st is also the final deadline for IDFA, the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam. This is one of the world's leading documentary film festivals. It's the biggest in Europe, and they showcase both films and interactive projects, so you can submit either or both. Um, The festival goes on for 11 days in November in one of the coolest cities I've ever visited. Do you guys like Amsterdam?
2: Yeah, who doesn't like Amsterdam? Who
0: doesn't like Amsterdam? I don't
2: even smoke weed and I love Amsterdam.
0: I am right there with you. Uh, Anyway, like many festivals, they have lots and lots of events going on for filmmakers in conjunction with the festival. Importantly for those of us actually trying to have a sustainable career and make a living, they have a big Docs for Sale market and the IDFA Forum, which is an international co-production and co-financing market for films in production. If you're a doc maker and you're heading to one international fest this year, I would definitely prioritize IDFA. So get your app in by August 1st. And now for one of our favorite segments and the main reason we brought Charles Hain on to join us today, Ask No Film School. Brad Pasito, a 16-year-old filmmaker, wants to buy his first DSLR lens and audio recorder with a maximum budget of 500 pounds, he's in the UK, or about 650 bucks. We get lots of questions about what cameras new filmmakers should buy. Um, They vary in sort of the specifics, but... They come in like every week. So we brought in Charles.
2: Yeah. As Liz was saying, this is one of the most common questions that we get here at No Film School. It's also one of the most common questions that comes up conversationally when people discover you're a filmmaker is uh, I'm interested in that or my nephew is interested in that. And uh, what's the what's the great thing to start out with? And I'm going to go with a very uncontroversial suggestion. And it is deliberately uncontroversial. And that's I think you start with the T2i, which if you're in England, I'm like 95 percent sure is called the 550D in England because uh, Canon uses different names in different markets.
0: It's a Canon camera. The it's a, it
2: is a Canon digital SLR and some would say it is in the bottom end of the digital SLR range. But I don't think the fact that it's the bottom of their line should be held against it. Uh, It is a very great, very durable camera, and I think it's the perfect starter camera for a couple reasons. The first is that you have the option of manual control for everything if you want it. Uh, Some people say, oh, well, you've got a phone in your pocket and you can get great footage with it, and I totally agree you can. But the interesting thing about something like your iPhone or your Android phone is they do so much thinking for you that there are lessons that you miss out on that when you later bump up to something like an Alexa or a RED, you might not understand quite as clearly. Whereas if you're like dedicated to becoming a filmmaker, you wanna understand how everything works, you wanna have like an intuitive sense of things, a camera with full manual control is gonna force you to really figure out how all of those things work. And I think the T2i is like the smart move for getting into that. I personally would go on Amazon or amazon.co.uk or BNH, uh, if they're in the UK and try and get a T2I package with the cheapest kit lens available. And the kit lens is not going to be great, but I tell you what, the nice thing about a kit lens is you're always going to have it with you. And the Canon lens mount is very common. If you want to do a special project, you'll be able to rent a lens. You'll occasionally buy used lenses that are better quality. But if you start with that initial kit lens, you will have a tool in your hands that gives you all of the control that you need to create professional style images. And I think that's really great. The other nice thing about the T2i that I think is a really important tool for filmmakers to learn early is that there's a big active community of people on the internet using it, modifying it, uh, putting it in different situations. And the sooner you start connecting with that community, the better off you're gonna be. For instance, there's a tool called Magic Lantern which you can install in the T2i which gives you all sorts of more control. It technically voids the warranty, so I'm not going to say you have to do it, but if you really want to learn everything you can about that camera and you want to participate in that Magic Lantern community and install it in the T2i, you will learn a whole lot more, not only about the camera, but also about finding a community of like-minded people and learning from them and uh, maybe even eventually being able to like give back some of your experiences so i think the t2i is like a really great starting platform from what i can tell it's going to come in about 400 pounds with a kit lens and that's going to leave you 200 or 200 pounds for like a little bit of a tripod in the beginning while i think it's totally necessary to have a completely separate zoom recorder like the uh what's the newest zoom the sr2 something like that for audio recording if you're just starting out An external microphone, and Sennheiser makes a nice one for the T2i for like 100 pounds, will be enough to get you started, especially if you're out there solo, it'll be enough to think about controlling the camera. I wouldn't worry about getting too fancy with your external video recorder yet. I've seen beautiful things shot with the T2i. It is really not that dissimilar than the 7D, which is the camera that launched Lena Dunham's career. And it's the camera that's launched a lot of people's careers. And professional stuff gets shot on all the time. And uh, it's basically the same sensor as the 7D with slower electronics. And uh, with Magic Lantern, you could get most of the way to matching what you'd get out of a 7D.
0: Thanks, Charles, and good luck, Brad. Let us know what you decide.
2: And here are the movies coming out this week. Um, coming to video on
1: demand, as well as opening in some select theaters around the country, is the movie The Land. It's written and directed by Stephen Cappell Jr., and it's the story of four teenage boys who attempt to escape the streets of Cleveland and the local pin that haunts the streets to pursue a professional career in skateboarding. It's getting some pretty good reviews, and it actually stars some like hip hop st- stars like Machine Gun Kelly who I've never really heard of before but my friends were talking about earlier this week so I thought that's kind of funny um coming to Amazon Prime Instant is Mr. Holmes it's Bill Condon's take on an aging retired Sherlock Holmes and that Sherlock Holmes is played by Ian McKellen which is pretty cool this older Holmes is is dealing with early dementia as he tries to remember both his final case and a mysterious woman whose memory haunts him. Also, he strikes up a friendship with a little boy who tries to get him to get back into solving mysteries, and it seems like a pretty charming film. Coming to Netflix is Tallulah, which was one of Netflix's many Sundance acquisitions this year. It stars Ellen Page and Allison Janney, and it's written and directed by Sean Heater. It is about a dissatisfied Beverly Hills housewife who's desperate to get rid of her toddler, so she hires a stranger to babysit and ends up trying to dump her toddler on that babysitter. Sounds like an interesting premise.
0: This lineup just hit so many of my favorite things. Skateboarding, Queen Pins, Ian McKellen, Ellen Page. They all sound good.
2: Toddlers. Bill Condon. Bill Condon.
0: Charles, you saw Cafe Society this last week, right? I
2: I did. I saw Cafe Society last night.
0: It opened in New York and L.A. this past week, and it's doing a wider release starting on the 29th. So why don't you give us your take?
2: I saw Cafe Society last night uh, at the wonderful BAM. Uh, It's set in the 1930s. It's a Bronx native moving to Hollywood, falling in love. Uh, There are love triangles. It's a Woody Allen movie. So there's a May-December romance. It is... Woody Allen's first collaboration with Vittorio Storaro, which is actually kind of surprising because it seems like they would have crossed paths sometime in the last 40 years. Um, It's particularly interesting because this is not only Woody Allen's first digital movie. Storaro pushed for it to be a digital movie, which is a break for Woody Allen, but it's also a break for Storaro. If anybody else remembers in the 90s when digital was first taking off, Storaro was saying all these things in the press about how, like, it'll never have the magic of cinema and the unpredictability of chemistry and the life that it captures. And now Storaro has been converted and pushed for it to be digital and pushed for it to be Sony. And they shot the Cine Alta 65. Although there are a lot of the same classic Storaro hallmarks there, even though it's captured digitally, Uh, Storaro customizes aircraft landing lights to use them as movie lights. Anything that takes place in California in this movie, apparently California only exists at sunset. It's all magic hour, no matter what is happening. So any scene (laughs) in California is bathed in this golden sunsetty glow. And, uh, you know, he custom makes lights to do that. So unsurprisingly, he does it really well.
0: I like, by the way, that the show is bookended with Apocalypse Now because it's also one of my favorite films. As John mentioned, it was one of his earlier, and Storaro shot that, for those of you who don't know, along with so many other classics. Yeah. Um, We actually have a post on the site from Cannes where Emily went to the press conference about this film and Storaro and Woody Allen, and it stars Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart all talk about the behind the scenes of the film.
1: And also coming out this week theatrically is Equity which was a Sundance and Tribeca standout. Um, it's directed by up-and-coming director Mira Manon, who was actually a member of this panel about, I think it was about VR. It was either about VR or about uh, how to make an indie film for as cheap as possible. And Ryan Koo was moderator for that, and that was at Sundance. So if you want to see how she made this film or hear more about how she made it for very cheap. Check out that video on our site. And we also have an interview with the screenwriter Amy Fox, which uh, was conducted by Oakley Anderson Moore. It's a Wall Street thriller starring Anna Gunn as a senior investment banker. She's threatened by a financial scandal and must entangle a web of corruption. Sounds pretty intense, financially speaking.
0: We don't always cover uh, Blu-ray and DVD releases on the show, but I want to make a special mention this week when I was researching for my post about films on race which we've mentioned on the show and I asked all of you for input on and it's finally going to go up this week I found out that Yesterday, Kino Lorber released the Pioneers of African-American Cinema series. It was executive produced by DJ Spooky, and it's a five-disc set that's an excellent primer on the African-American experience captured in over 20 films by black directors and spanning over 20 years of the early cinematic era. I can't wait to check it out. In ongoing events, I don't know if you all know, but Michael Moore has run his own film festival, the Traverse City Film Festival, for many years. This year, it's running until July 31st, so a couple more days. What's notable about this year is that there are 32 official films in competition, and every single one of them is directed by a woman. Um, Moore wrote an impassioned letter discussing this choice. It, It included trademark Moore's sarcasm. One of my favorite lines was, As an expression of tokenism usually reserved for women, I'm bringing five films by American men in a sidebar called Men Make Movies. The struggle continues. (laughs) So thanks, Michael, and good luck with the festival. In closing, thank you all for joining us. Uh, It's been fun. You can read about all these stories and more at NoFilmSchool.com, including the post associated with this podcast where we link to all the grants and opportunities and movies that we discussed. Please, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. I actually just read some of your comments. I hadn't done that lately. And um, I have to say that you guys really uh, warm my heart so much. I really appreciate the feedback. We all do. You've given us five stars. I hope uh, more of you will continue to do so because it really, really helps and um, we love you, mean it. You can find me on Twitter at Liz Film.
1: You can find me at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim John Jim. You can find me at Charles
2: Hain.
0: And you can find all of us at No Film School. Thanks and see you next week.